Good morning. I'm Anna Marie, and it's time again for Focus. Today, our guests are folks from Alive Hospice, and we're going to start with the president and CEO of Alive Hospice, Kimberly Gesley. Welcome. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for having us this morning. You said before we got rolling here, you felt like you have a specific job, and what is that? I think that's important to start with. Sure. I think most CEOs and presidents and healthcare companies think about the financials and growth. Sure. Um, I do worry about those things, but really I exist to get barriers out of our way, but to change the conversation around end of life. Like what? So a barrier might be that a family may not be comfortable talking about death and dying. For instance, if somebody's diagnosed with stage four cancer, the probability of their life expectancy might be very minimum. At that point, our palliative care team can come in and start talking to the family about how do you start preparing for it versus waiting to the last moment? Mm-hmm. So changing the conversation is putting a situation where the conversation actually occurs. Because it's hard to talk about when you hear a, a bad prognosis for someone. And when you know that the end is inevitable, it is a hard discussion to start. Where we're trying to start the conversation is around education. And I really think there's a tactical component to it. So while you're healthy and while you don't have a life-threatening illness, right. You know, have you, and I'm putting in air quotes, prepared your house? So do you have a will? Do you have advanced care directives? Have you thought about the things that if something were to happen to you, have you put that proper information in place? That's the first part of changing the conversation, of making sure that you have the proper, and again, it's the tactical components, you have the proper paperwork in place. So if something were to happen to you, that that's not at your last moments of life, that you're making decisions that impact your family and your friends and the community around you. And you're not going to have as much time to think about it if you wait till the last moment. And you said when we were speaking before the interview, something about how we used to talk about the end of life. Sure. And I think what the, so I was referencing where I grew up in Chicago. If you found out that someone you cared about or a neighbor or someone in your community was dying, they would whisper it, you know, she has cancer. They'd say it real softly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we think she has cancer. So what can we do? Um, There's one thing about treatment, but there's also, you know, do they have their affairs in order? And some of that is making sure if there's kids in the household, you know, how are you going to educate the kids on the prognosis of the parent? Mm -hmm. If there's people out of state, like how are you going to communicate them and bring them along the way on your journey? And at some point when that patient needs hospice care, so that's, you know, when there is a terminal illness and you can see an end, you know, how are we able to help them to make sure that can our social workers help you figure out, you know, what would you like your funeral to look like? Mm-hmm. I referenced when my mom passed away, and you said, don't talk about crime. And I think still, when my mom passed away, she left a playbook for me in essence. Wow. So I didn't have to be an executor of her estate. I just got to be her daughter. Oh, wow. And all I had to do was open the book, and it told me everything she wanted. And that was such a gift she gave to me that allowed me to grieve for her loss and not be talking to attorneys. And I knew yeah. everything. When I think about why we exist, I want other people to have that same experience. Was that part of what inspired you to get involved with Alive Hospice, or were you already there? So when I joined Alive Hospice, a recruiter had reached out to me, and I knew Alive, and I knew their reputation. In fact, my girlfriend, uh, Myra McWhorter, had passed under Alive's care. And I knew from that experience how wonderful they could be to us. Mm-hmm. Um, when I met with members of the Alive team, you see so much passion around what we do. It wasn't a job. I mean, I I don't know how to describe it. Those who know, know. When you walk through our doors and you connect with our colleagues and you see that the reason they came was to be their best self, you just know that everybody's coming to work today because they want to make a difference. And, you know, some people talk about, you know, isn't it sad going to work? There are definitely days. I mean, I have cried more at work than anywhere else I have in my career. 
but also I've smiled. I've had tears of joy. And we had a wedding in our Murfreesboro inpatient unit two weeks ago, okay. and it was beautiful that we were able to help the daughter of the dying father still have her dad walk her down the aisle. Wow. So, right. So when I think about being able to help change those conversations, how we can help make an impact that the final days of somebody's life, and whether those final days are weeks, months, years, or if it's minutes, how can we have a positive impact? And that's what really attracted me once I met some of the colleagues at Alive. How do you get people's mindset into let's make decisions about that? Because I know when I tried to talk to my sister about um, living will or advanced directives, she said, I just can't talk about that now. When my husband and I wrote our will, it took us just so many iterations because I kept crying during the whole thing thinking, oh, if you die first. (laughs) Um, I understand (laughs) that. I understand that. But in return, I think, you know, fortunately, we have all this documented, so there won't be any questions. You know, how we change the conversation in that perspective is we do community education. We call it the gift initiative. And it's not gift like I'm giving you a present. It's the gift we leave behind. And as I referenced with my mom, the gift she left for me was there was a playbook that said from the flowers she wanted, the music she wanted, to how her assets were supposed to be divided. Yeah. So we do a similar program here. Um, we have a whole community outreach team, and they're, they really meet with anybody who wants us to. But they go into churches, they go into senior living homes, they go into community out, outreach centers. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot with different cultures, so as I mentioned, with churches. Um, and then start talking to them about the importance of having advanced care directors, about having a will, about just documenting your wishes as simple as saying, my mom wanted yellow roses at her funeral. For folks who don't even know exactly what a live hospice is, what is it and how long has it been around? What's its mission? Who does it serve? Is it free? That sort of thing. The tagline that you'd hear is, so live hospice is, we're almost 47 years old. We'll celebrate 45, or excuse me, 47 years this August. Mm-hmm. As things are changing in the healthcare landscape, we're the only non-for-profit hospice care organization in Middle, Middle Tennessee. And what makes that different is we are a mission-based organization. So there's a lot of nonprofit organizations, and there's mission-based nonprofit. And what it means is we lead with our mission. To summarize, our mission is we enrich the lives of people with life-limiting illness. And it's not just the patient, it's the family and the community around them. What I always say about being a non-for-profit that's mission-based is that we go above and beyond what the insurance regulations and payer systems will pay us for. And that's because of the donations we get from the community. This past year in particular, it was about $1.3 to $1.4 million in charity care or financial assistance. So we believe it alive that the emotional, physical, and spiritual care should be given. We believe that the conversations that should be had are had. We believe that the venue in which these conversations can take place should be created. But we really believe that nobody should die alone, regardless of your ability to pay. So when patients are presented to us, we don't stop and do a financial summary to say, yes, they'll be able to pay this bill. We look at their medical condition and we give them care. You know, we have our palliative care is when somebody gets diagnosed. We have our hospice care when they're in the um, stage of their life where they're dying. And then we have our grief services. And our grief services is part of our mission. And our mission-based services is our gift back to the community based on the donations they give to us. Now, you said palliative care? Yes, ma'am. What does that mean? So palliative care is really at any point when you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Stage 4 cancer is a prime example. Stage 4 renal kidney disease doesn't mean that you're going to die today. Um, Hospice care, the way designed, is that you have a terminal illness, and if your disease were to run its normal course within six months, that the patient would pass away. Mm -hmm. Now, a crystal ball doesn't always tell you that, so there are little 
yeah. steps along the way. But many times, and I think mostly oncology, nephrology, there's certain specialties, cardiology, where the patient truly has a disease that they are going to die from. Yeah. At some point along that way, palliative care can come in and help you as the patient understand what your goals of care are. So at some point, you might decide if you're a patient with renal kidney disease that you just don't want to do dialysis anymore. Oh, I see. So being able to say, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. What is my other course look like? And that other course may be that you're not going to a dialysis three times a week, that maybe you've decided not to, and you're going to take hospice care, and hospice care then will help you through that next phase. Okay. So is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners know about that I've maybe neglected to ask you about? Well, I think there's probably two things. We have a volunteer who we recorded one time. Um, we use this recording when we have new colleagues, and you know she talks about hospice care. She had two children die under our care, and she talks about hospice care, and she realized she wasn't giving up that she actually was bringing joy and comfort into her kids' lives. And I hear often that I'll say to somebody, like, I believe your mother's hospice eligible. Oh, she's not ready for that. And it's because they don't understand that oh. it can really take the stress off the patient. It can take the stress off the family. And it doesn't mean that you, you're giving up when you offer in hospice care. You're actually making sure they're getting the best care possible. Mm. So I think that's a critical point. And that way you get to experience the time that you have with them instead of having to be... Mm -hmm their caregiver alone. There's a lot of families we meet where the caregiver starts to almost have anxiety towards the patient because every morning I'm bathing mom, I'm feeding mom, I'm changing her sheets, mm -hmm. and mom becomes a four-letter word yeah. versus saying I have support from people who know how to do this, mm -hmm. who might teach me how to do this, and it takes some of the burden. Yeah, you know, Respite care is an example where you might, as the caregiver, need to just take a week off and just be a girl mm -hmm. for a week and not be caring for your mother. We had, we experienced that with my mother and then with my father and respite care was extremely important because you just burn out. You just get exhausted. Absolutely. And then when somebody with dementia wakes you up in the middle of the night because they're trying to go to the store or trying to go see somebody who's not alive any longer, you just have to have a break or you break. I believe I read somewhere that caregivers often have long-term health issues because they've just worn themselves down and not been able to take care of themselves as Absolutely. well as possible. Absolutely. And so a, a live hospice can step in and help with th those issues as well. There's two issues you mentioned there. One is while the patient's still alive, or the one you purse, you know, the, lo the loved one, while they're still alive, as the caregiver, there, there is the need for respite. Mm -hmm. There's also, after the patient dies, the need to start the healing. Because sometimes as the caregiver, you don't give yourself that kind of self-wellness that you should be doing, the self-care you should be doing. So giving yourself permission to, to take that break, to be able to care for yourself and not feel guilty about it. Mm -hmm. um, wow. Anybody can reach out to Alive Hospice. Anybody can They're reach listening. out to us. They can go to our website at alivehospice.org and it will easily navigate them to how to call us, how to get an inquiry. Mm -hmm. But also if you want to join our team, don't, you know, go out to our website. You can see the amazing positions we have open. And as I said earlier, I promise you, I have never worked anywhere where I feel so welcomed. And, you know, I believe that it's a place where you can show up as yourself every single day. Mm -hmm. And there's some days your superhero powers are just right in line. And there's other days where you need your colleagues to pull you along the way. Yeah. So at Alive, we have about 350 employees and almost 400 volunteers. Oh, wow. So we have more people in the community than we do colleagues. And we're going to put the website out so they can get linked up to Alive Hospice. 
Perfect. Thank you so much. And again, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. It's an honor. A guest was Kimberly Gessley, the president and CEO of Alive Hospice. You can tell how wonderful that mission is that she's on. Now, let's get our next guest, Allie Drescher. She is the senior director of mission-based services with Alive Hospice. Welcome. Thank you, Anna. So glad to be with you. Yeah. So what are mission-based services? Mission-based services is the component of Alive that I am so proud to represent because it is our contribution back to a community that has partnered with us for 47 years. It's our opportunity to not just tick the boxes of things that we should do as a hospice care provider, but really focus on the things that we believe will enrich our community from three-year-olds all the way through adulthood. So it looks a lot of different ways. One component being the way we connect with our community through program partners, nonprofits, Mm -hmm. churches, schools. What we try and do is bring in what can be a terrifying conversation to some people Mm -hmm. in a way that's tangible and approachable opening them up just a little bit to dive into a subject matter that's pretty daunting. I mean, you know, for your listeners right now that might be driving into work, it might sound like a tough way to start the day to have this conversation. Guess what, honey, we're going to talk tonight about, yeah, that is a hard conversation to start. Mm -hmm. So when we educate the community, it is on ways that we can think about the fact that death is a part of the normal lifespan. And the more we embrace that and get comfortable with it, the more emotional energy is freed up for us, the less anxiety we walk around with, whether we know it or not. Oh. And then we use that emotional energy to live in a way that is intentional and purposeful and meaningful to that person, whatever that looks like for yes. them. Oh, I, I, I think I see where you're going here. So like, well, she, she may die. Well, no, she's going to die. Yes. We're all going to die. And now we have a little more control over how we want all of this to look. And how we want all of this to kind of play out and how easy we want to make it on uh, our family and our loved ones. Sure. And even our sense of our own ideas surrounding death. A lot of us uh, might have questions about what that looks like or what we hope for, what we hope it will be, what happens to us when we die. Mm -hmm. All of those big existential questions come to the surface and suddenly we want to flee from the whole conversation altogether. Right. So we're just picking little pieces of that that can be approachable for people to explore. Like what's meaningful to me? What are the things that I want to accomplish before I die? What's one thing I would tell that family member that I didn't get to see for the last two years because of COVID? What would I want someone to know if I'm no longer here to say it myself? And then to politely challenge our community to say, why aren't you having that conversation right now then? Because tomorrow isn't promised. Wow. Okay. I want to take one quick step back because I want to look more at how you do that specifically. But you said first we want to not just tick off the boxes of what an organization like ours should do, which would be this, 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 this. What is Alive Hospice doing that's reaching into more of the community? Great question. So as a hospice, there are certain metrics or measurements that we would be gearing our services toward, not just to check those boxes, if you will, but to make sure we're providing really good clinical care to patients and their families. Mm -hmm. So there are expectations that we're providing social, emotional, spiritual support to people who Mm -hmm. are also receiving clinical or medical support through palliative care or hospice. So there so are is it that we will check in there. with them one time a week. Those sort of things 
those are the ticking off the yes, boxes. Yes, that any hospice would be yes. uh, obliged to do and certainly would want to do that as well as yes. possible for the sure. families that they serve. Since we're a nonprofit hospice, we have the opportunity to say to those in the community, what do you feel like you need? What are the areas that are lacking? What misinformation is there? Mm -hmm. And let us help you explore that a little bit. So I see my role at Alive to be one that reinforces our mission, which Kimberly mentioned, is to support that family, their family extended, whether that's friends or neighbors down the street, Mm -hmm. but also the community at large. Mm -hmm. And the way that we're doing that is to have really hands-on experiential activities. So it may be that we are coming to your local organization or your women's group, for example, and we're going to show a documentary that talks about how people tend to mourn publicly in America in this generation. And then we're going to have a conversation about it. We're going to send them home with a memorial activity that they can make with their family to start the conversation about grief and loss at home. So we want to model having those conversations in a safe space. People can practice with us. Yeah. So if they're afraid to broach the subject or they have a question that they feel like is silly that maybe they don't want to ask someone else, mm-hmm. we're going to provide that creative Uh, informative, relaxed atmosphere where they can do that in the hopes that then they can turn around with the family or friends that they have in their life and then be bold enough to have those conversations too. So you say you can send them home with an idea for a memorial activity. Mm -hmm. Like what? What would that be? One example is a floating lotus activity that we do. And it is a really beautiful uh, vellum paper lotus flower. Mm -hmm. And it has a candle in the middle. And so we will provide prompts that people can write onto each petal of the flower. Mm -hmm. So it's typically things like one memory that I have. Or one thing I would say to you if you were still here. Um, Something I'm doing now that I wish you would know. And they write those things onto the petals. Mm -hmm. And then maybe it's the anniversary of that person's death or maybe their birthday. And they can send that lotus flower. It will float onto a body of water, whatever they choose, and light that candle and just have a moment of remembrance. You know, we live in a society where we want to push through tough things as quickly as possible. We steer away from things that are hard or make us anxious. We are quick to tell people, shouldn't you be moving on by now? Mm -hmm. Hasn't it been long enough? You know, we criticize people and say, "We, we miss the old you. And that doesn't just pertain to end of life or if someone is experiencing a terminal illness. It also pertains to bereavement. And we don't have the mechanisms that we would have 150 years ago to mourn publicly here in America. And I'm making some generalizations. And But like what? Like the wearing black and the things like that? Yes, absolutely. So the practice of wearing mourning garb in the Victorian era was something if you didn't do, people would question your loyalty to the person that died. Oh, wow. It is a practice that crossed socioeconomic barriers, meaning that even people that couldn't go to a store and find mourning garb that came right off the rack, they would actually use Uh, pots to dye their clothing back Mm -hmm. black and therefore it's a tradition that allowed us to be in community with each other when we were hurting it was a symbol that that's how important that person was to me yeah and they would 
wear that morning garb for a certain length of time, dependent on the relationship that they had with the person. But Mm -hmm. everyone did that. And someone would think there was something wrong with you if you didn't. And now we flipped the exact opposite, where maybe there's a consideration that something's wrong with you if you're still grieving six months or a year later. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a hot topic about this issue in our field right now with the inclusion of a new diagnosis called prolonged grief disorder. And it's a, a new notion that, you know, Maybe there's some part of grief that's pathological. We tend to believe that grief is a natural, normal human experience, and getting in touch with it actually helps us cope with it better in the long run. Than just burying it. Mm -hmm. Typically. Push it down. Yes. Grief is something that will stay with you over time, and it will come to the surface at some point. If you don't have a mechanism to connect with it, early on, then it can resurface later down the road in a more problematic way Mm -hmm. or in a less manageable way. Mm -hmm. Kind of sideswipe you. So what are some of the other things that a live hospice does and maybe that we want to, as a community, connect with? Beyond our education to the community, we offer pretty robust grief support services, and they look lots of different ways. We offer Easy entry points. If someone's thinking, I don't need a grief therapist or I'm not going to come to a grief group and sit in a circle and cry about this loss, that is okay. And we are here for you. What we've done is to create a pretty significant roster of support that will meet that person in the manner in which they would prefer to grieve. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the things that you do for yourself if you've had a bad day. Maybe that's uh, taking a long bath or you might go outside and take a walk. We are going to have programming that is similar to that. What are the ways that you're soothing yourself and taking care of yourself when you go through something tough? Mm -hmm. We want our grief support to model that. So we have groups that are walk and talk groups. We have monthly hikes all around the region. Uh, We have a core group of hikers that have been coming for about a year now, and we always have new people come to that group. And they're connecting not just in nature, you know, with their feet in the dirt and getting some fresh air Mm -hmm. and a little vitamin D, but also with each other and really experiencing what it's like to be around a group of people who kind of get the tough stuff of dealing with loss and how you go on living in the midst of that. We have art-based groups, musical opportunities, and then, of course, we have lots of talk therapy as well. So in addition to those monthly groups that you can just drop into one time, you never have to come again. And you're not signing a contract to continue to be there. So you can just test it out. And those are online and we have some in person as well. And then we have seasonal eight-week grief support groups. These are a little bit more intensive. The group that starts together at the beginning of the eight weeks will stay together for the entire duration. Mm-hmm. And they meet weekly. Uh, They are led by a licensed therapist. And so that will really provide support to people that might feel like their support system moved away from them. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people think that death and grief is contagious and they want you to be on the other side of the street, if you will. They Uh just fear that maybe if they're hearing about your experience, that it causes them to stop and think, could this happen to me? Yeah. And so oftentimes we hear from people that they feel like their support system was there for them when the prognosis was given or right around the funeral. But a few weeks or months later, they're kind of standing on their own. So we have those groups to provide that support for them. We offer one-on-one counseling with licensed counselors, both virtually and in person. We can provide that to the community at large. So your loved one doesn't have to have been a patient and alive. And I think that's something that's so amazing that our executive team, our board of directors, our leadership for year over year has been committed to say, 
let's serve the community with this. We're the only grief center in Middle Tennessee that is solely dedicated to the provision of grief support for wow. children and adults. Wow. And it's not based on, uh, uh, I need some grief counseling. Well, how much can you afford? Mm -hmm. We're just going to be there for you. We are going to be there for you. We do use a sliding scale for community members. It's based on uh, where their household income is. But we also recognize that after a death, people are probably stressed about finances. Uh, We're going to meet you where you are. And in fact, we don't turn people away based on an ability to pay. So those that can pay pool their money back into that scholarship fund for others that wouldn't be able to afford it without their help. So it's a really beautiful exchange. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes someone will finish coming to counseling and they'll say, okay, now it's, I got it for free. How can I give it back to someone else? Because it was that meaningful for them. There are other things that I think it's important to know. And that is that we don't have any restrictions on who the person was that died. So if you have a great grandmother and you are mourning that loss, we're not going to determine that to not be significant enough. So that is good enough for us. And we recognize that you're likely grieving and could benefit from a little bit of extra support. If uh, the loss was seven years ago, you might call and say, is it too late for me? Maybe I should have come in then, but I didn't know that this grief was going to stick with me as it has. We are going to say it's absolutely not too late. So there are no restrictions based on the time since the loss. And mm-hmm. then there's also no restrictions based on the type of death. So it might be a death that they anticipated for a long time in the case of a terminal illness, mm-hmm. for example, or it might be a sudden incident that was unexpected right. and we are going to be able to serve them. So really, there's it's very easy to get through the door at a Lives Grief Center. And that's something that I'm really proud of. And especially in the wake of COVID, we have people that have experienced the death of a colleague, for example. On top of that, they've had to move out of their house and downsize, or maybe they've lost their job. There's so much grief embedded in each one of those experiences. But we tend to walk around and say, you know, this bad thing happened to me, and then there was this tragedy, and then this awful thing. And I just stop and say to that person, have you ever thought that you might be grieving Now, typically, I'll get a little bit of a strange look at first because we just don't use that language around those types of losses. But it's true. When they stop and think about it, they tend to think, maybe I am. And maybe this is why I feel so distressed. I think there may be a lot of people who are listening who feel very validated right now because they had been feeling that loss or grieving and maybe not realized it, not been able to call it that. Because if you lose a job... You don't go and wear mourning garb. Nobody wears black around you like, we're so sorry for the loss of your job, basically. If you've lost colleagues or things like that, we don't recognize it. And people do tend to be trying to swim through it by themselves. Mm. So I bet there are people who are listening who are like, oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. I hope so. I think that is the pinnacle of what we're trying to do at the Grief Center. So in a world that's saying, move on, get over it. We are saying, in fact, let's just stop and be with it for a minute. Could we sit with these really difficult emotions? You know, one thing we talk about a lot is the fact that in our culture, we're really quick to pass the tissue. And I mean that metaphorically and literally. When someone is in distress, we think, oh, we want to care for them. So we hand them that tissue box. But we're also sending a message of stop crying, clean it up. It's, you know, you're making me uncomfortable. 
And so what we're doing at Alive in our hospice program, our palliative program, education and grief all across the board is that you might see a delay before we pass that tissue box. But what I guarantee you is going to happen is that we're going to create a space for you to be with the experience that you're having, whatever that looks like for you. It makes me emotional because that's why I get out of bed every day so that people can have that moment in time to say it is hard but we're in it with you. And we find other things to do instead of passing the tissue. We might sit down beside you. We might turn down the music. We might close the blinds, but you're going to get it that the grief support, whether the death has happened yet or it's years down the road, the emotional support that you're getting is one that will validate your experience. And it will say, we are here for you. You take the time that you need We've got time for you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. If you just caught up with us on the tail end of that, we just spoke to Allie Drescher, the Senior Director of Mission-Based Services with Alive Hospice, and we spoke earlier with Kimberly Gessley, the President and CEO of Alive Hospice. We'll put all the links and the information on our Focus Facebook page. Make sure you join us again next week. I'm Anna Marie, and that's Focus.